the United States began a secret research and development effort with the Army designation Manhattan Project and its larger holistic designation, which included that Army component of the program, among others, the development of substitute materials, was more or less set aside as the term Manhattan Project became popular with those in the know. So there was, technically, a different name for the whole of this R&D project, but that smaller component of it ultimately came to lend its name to the whole thing. At its height, that larger effort that became known as the Manhattan Project employed more than 130,000 people, cost about $2 billion at the time, which is about $23 billion in modern dollars, and about 90% of that funding was spent on factories and the costs associated with producing fissile materials, radioactive components capable of sustaining a nuclear reaction. The other 10% was spent actually developing and building the ostensible purpose of the program, nuclear weapons, the first of which, in terms of those fully built and used at least, were called Fat Man and Little Boy, which represented two different approaches to triggering and sustaining a weaponized version of this type of reaction. These bombs, famously or infamously, were dropped on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan near the end of World War II, at the beginning of August 1945, and the debate still rages as to whether dropping them was more about ending the war sooner rather than later, and thus preventing more casualties that might have otherwise been inflicted on both the American and Japanese sides, if a full-on invasion of Japan had become necessary, or if it was more about demonstrating that these weapons had become available to the U.S. military, serving as a great big flashing sign that everybody else better watch out. There's a good chance that both purposes played into the logic of the development and deployment of these weapons. But whatever the full truth behind these decisions, it happened. A great many people died, and the United States enjoyed a brief period of nuclear weapon-wielding exclusivity. That brief period was indeed brief, though, as just a few years later, in August of 1949, the Soviet Union successfully tested its first nuclear bomb, and a few years after that, the United Kingdom tested their first nuclear weapons on an island off the coast of Australia in October of 1952. The following month, that same year, the United States tested its first hydrogen bomb, a weapon that was about 500 times more powerful than the device that leveled Nagasaki. And France tested their first atomic bomb in February of 1960. China tested their first nuclear weapons in October of 1964. And about a decade later, in May of 1974, India conducted their first successful nuclear weapons test, codenamed Smiling Buddha. There was a nuclear explosion off the coast of the Cape of Good Hope in the South Indian Ocean in September of 1979, and though there is no public certainty on this, 
It's thought that this test was conducted by South Africa with Israel's help. Israel's long-suspected secret nuclear weapons program was publicly revealed in September of 1986, though the government still has not officially acknowledged its existence as of 2021. And in 1991, South Africa came clean about their nuclear weapons efforts as part of a larger announcement that they would be joining an existing nuclear non-proliferation treaty, an international agreement signed by many nations not to pursue nuclear weapons or allow testing of such weapons in their territory. South Africa had built six weapons up till that point, but said that they had dismantled all of them. Also in the 1990s, many former Soviet governments returned nuclear weapons based in their territory to Russia for destruction, in most cases also announcing that they would be joining that non-proliferation treaty. In May 1998, Pakistan conducted a series of nuclear weapons tests, and in October of 2006, North Korea announced that they had successfully conducted their own tests. As of early 2021, the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom, France, China, India, Pakistan, and North Korea officially have nuclear weapons, while Israel is understood to have them, but has not made any official announcements on the matter. So that's nine countries that publicly or are understood to have nuclear weapons. On the other side of this coin, 189 United Nations member states, alongside two observer entities, the Holy See, run by the Vatican, and the State of Palestine, have all signed the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, which is the official name of that earlier-mentioned Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was formed to help staunch the spread of nuclear weapons around the world though North Korea withdrew themselves from that treaty in 2003. Iran threatened to withdraw in 2020, and four United Nations member states, India, Israel, Pakistan, and South Sudan, have never signed on to the treaty. The existence of nuclear weapons, be they the older and relatively weaker atomic ones of the World War II era, or the newer, massively more powerful hydrogen models, have dramatically changed the state of play, militarily and diplomatically, since their introduction onto the global stage about seven and a half decades ago. What I'd like to talk about today are some of the discussions being had in contemporary times about nuclear weapons in a general sense, and how one country is bucking the dominant global trend in deciding to increase the size of their nuclear warhead arsenal. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled Boris Johnson's Vision for Post-Brexit Global Britain Includes More Nuclear Weapons. This piece is focused on a recent declaration by the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, about the government's intentions for the next decade or so 
in terms of boosting international trade and reinforcing the United Kingdoms by some measures, depleting stockpiles of soft power internationally. This strategy was summed up in a document published by the government entitled Global Britain in a Competitive Age, with the subtitle The Integrated Review of Security, Defense, Development, and Foreign Policy. And a lot of the strategic declarations in this publication were about what one would expect from a wealthy nation that's been through a turbulent period that it expects to continue having to endure in various forms for the foreseeable future. A lot of indications that they are aware of the challenges that they face, declarations about how they will address those challenges, and a rough indication of what it will cost to do so, and how those costs will be handled. One big surprise tucked within the pages of this document, though, was that the government intends to increase the cap on the number of nuclear warheads deployed on the Royal Navy's Trident-class submarines. At the moment, they maintain a maximum of 180 nuclear warheads that can be fired from these submarines. But this document indicates that they would increase that number by over 40%, up to 260. The UK, officially, has around 200 nuclear warheads at the moment, and the government has previously said that it will get that number down to 180 by the mid-2020s. That previous announcement was generally in line with other nuclear weapon-related announcements from other wealthy nuclear-armed nations over the past several decades. From the end of the Cold War onward, de-weaponization has been the name of the game, except for newcomers to the nuclear weapons club, like North Korea, which has been conducting a lot of tests and making a lot of announcements about the fairly rapid increase in the size of its nuclear arsenal. When asked about this seemingly out-of-step move on the part of the government, the British Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said that the UK needed to maintain a minimal level of credible nuclear deterrence, calling nuclear weapons, quote, the ultimate guarantee, the ultimate insurance policy against the worst threat from hostile states, end quote. The document itself says that the UK will maintain its existing stance to not use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against any non-nuclear state that is signed on to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the nuclear weapons-related treaty that I mentioned in the intro, but that they reserved the right to change their minds on that if the threat environment were to change and if other weapons of mass destruction, including chemical and biological weapons, but also other unnamed technological threats that could have a comparable impact, made using them necessary. When asked about this point in the document, the UK government said that the decision to increase their on-hand number of nuclear warheads was, quote, in recognition of the evolving security environment, including the developing range of technological and doctrinal threats, end quote, which, according to analysts, could mean anything from a weaponized virus to a dirty bomb to some kind of large-scale hack on public infrastructure. In any of those cases, then, there's a chance that Britain could consider using nukes as part of their counterattack. This plan has resulted in quite a lot of pushback, 
from other parties in the UK, but also from international entities, ranging from other countries to metanational organizations. It's notable that this announcement landed around the same time as the US and Russia agreed to reduce their own nuclear weapon stockpiles as part of a continuation of the New START Treaty, formally called Measures for the Further Reduction and Limitation of Strategic Offensive Arms, which first came into effect in 2011 and which will last until 2026, after having been extended in early 2021. This treaty calls for the United States and Russia to both reduce the number of nuclear missile launchers in their arsenals by half, and it provides an inspection and verification framework so that both nations can be comfortable that the other is adhering to the tenets of the treaty. New START is the sort of treaty that one expects to see in a post-Cold War world, because, frankly, nuclear-armed nations went a little haywire during that period, which, depending on how you measure it, lasted from around the end of World War II until 1991, at least if we stick to most of the formal indications of its beginning and end. This period was defined in part by proxy conflicts fought around the world, and those proxy conflicts were on the metascale mostly ideological in nature, with authoritarian sort of communism on one side and an American flavor of capitalism-funded democracy on the other. Neither the Soviet Union nor the United States could really afford to come into direct military conflict because both had excessive numbers of nuclear weapons pointed at each other and at all other possible enemies around the world, but they could afford to fund their perceived allies, or allies of convenience, and basically tear the world apart in comparably small ways by attempting to increase their respective spheres of influence and outlast their military and economic superpower arch-nemeses. In the wake of that incredibly turbulent and stressful standoff, both the U.S. and Russia, which was the successor state to the Soviet Union when it collapsed, found themselves in possession of just a silly number of nuclear weapons. Estimates vary depending on where the numbers come from and what you choose to measure, but as of 2020, after decades of disarmament following the end of the Cold War, the United States still has something like 5,800 nuclear weapons in its arsenal, and Russia still has around 6,375. For comparison, China has about 320 nuclear weapons, France has about 290, the UK is thought to have just over 200, Pakistan has around 160, India around 150, Israel is thought to have something like 90 nuclear weapons, and North Korea is currently estimated to have something like 30 to 40 operational nuclear weapons. At any given moment, the majority of the world's nuclear weapons are either retired or stockpiled, the retired ones, in the process of being decommissioned, but still intact and theoretically still dangerous and available to be used until they are finally fully dismantled, while the stockpiled ones are divvied up and available for deployment but not currently deployed on some kind of launch vehicle. The U.S. and Russia 
only have about 1,300 to 1,400 deployed nuclear weapons each. And we don't know with any real resolution about the rest of the nuclear-armed world because they are not privy to most of the larger bipolar U.S.-Russia disarmament treaties that require such divulgences on a semi-regular basis. All of which is to say there are currently around 3,000 nuclear weapons actively pointed at potential targets today. And there may be substantially more than that, depending on how and where all those other non-U.S., non-Russian countries have theirs deployed, and whether or not the U.S. and or Russia is being sneaky about deploying more than they're supposed to, according to the rules of these treaties, which is not outside the realm of possibility. The overarching international military landscape is typically more favorable to nations that have nuclear weapons, because in theory at least, they can't really be invaded and conquered by another nation-state. Because if the US or Russia, for instance, was ever to be invaded or seriously threatened militarily by a neighbor, they could just nuke that neighbor, and the consequences would almost certainly be more severe in that case than the benefits for the invading party. As a result, those nations that have nukes have a major whammy on everyone else, at least in terms of defense. The offensive capabilities of nukes, so far at least, have been largely moderated because of international agreements and norms that were put into place after the U.S. dropped those two atomic bombs on Japan at the end of World War II. In theory, there are cases in which the use of nuclear weapons would be superior to the use of conventional weapons. That's just in terms of doing the math. For loss of lives on both sides, the amount of destruction, the duration of a conflict, and other things like that. But breaking with that post-World War II universally adhered to trend of not using nukes offensively would come with all sorts of other consequences, almost certainly making the world a much more dangerous place, while also making whomever broke with that convention and international law a pariah to essentially everyone else on the planet. So although nuclear-armed nations could technically just nuke their enemies instead of engaging in traditional conflict, it has not ever, yet at least, made sense to do so, because they would almost certainly be cold-shouldered by the whole world and would likely become the target of nukes themselves. And because of this, it's difficult to imagine a non-self-defeating use case for nukes, other than nuking someone who nuked someone else first, or using nuclear weapons in a last-ditch defensive effort against an otherwise undefeatable enemy. For all current intents and purposes, then, nukes are only maybe somewhat useful offensively for saber-rattling purposes. Threats, basically. Words, not actions. But then, because everyone knows that, knows that these nukes are not really useful for most purposes. Their utility, even as threats, is arguably quite limited. It's a threat that no one could afford to go forward with. And this, again, is why increasing the UK's military cap on nuclear warheads seems like a fairly bizarre, anachronistic proposition to so many people. Sure, you want to maintain a credible deterrence with the nuclear weapons you have on hand, so that no one would dare attack you at home. But does 260 seem that much more threatening 
than 180 nuclear weapons. I'd be very curious to know how they came up with that number and what math they did to determine that 260 nuclear weapons in the stockpile makes them seem like a less appealing invasion target compared to 180. That said, we are entering a moment in which, according to some theorists at least, there are heightening international tensions, and the chances of a military flare-up, particularly between nuclear-armed nations, will be greater than they have been for several decades, and that will remain the case for at least another decade into the future. The basis of this theory, which one analyst has called the decade of concern, is that the 2020s will already be a period of heightened international tensions because China has been surging economically, politically, and militarily for decades, but is now approaching a moment in which the bulk of that surge will have slowed, as is normal for countries that reach a certain level of wealth and scale. And they are now, for a variety of reasons, focusing on reinforcing their influence and power and knocking potential opponents and threats from their respective pedestals. They are also very keen to keep things secure and under central control at home, hence their recent efforts to get democracy-loving Hong Kong under heel, and their presumed near-future determination to do something of the same in Taiwan which they claim as their territory, but Taiwan claims otherwise, with the support of most Western countries, including the United States, which has said that it would defend Taiwan against invasion from China if it ever came to that. That promise is thought to be one of the more likely sparks that could set off a conflagration of World War proportions in the 2020s, and part of what makes this specific potentiality more likely is that the U.S. is entering a period in which their military forces are no longer as obviously unmatched, but the upkeep on their earlier investments militarily is still being paid, and the next step iterations of those tools and systems will not be in place until sometime in the 2030s. In other words, the U.S. is still the dominant global military force, but not as much as it was 10 years ago and the costs are higher than the benefits relative to what some other countries like China are enjoying with their militaries. Their forces and infrastructure are a lot cheaper, a little bit fresher and newer, and have been optimized to counter the biggest advantages that the U.S. military currently enjoys. Thus, we have a 10-year-ish period in which the United States will be relatively weaker than usual, burdened with tons of expenses that don't directly lead to more military might, and not yet able to deploy technologies and systems that utilize all of the whiz-bang new innovations and tools that they've been working on in the meantime. China, on the other hand, is expected to be at the opposite end of the spectrum during this decade reaching an apex of growth-related power and potency, economically and militarily, right before the seemingly inevitable plateau period of growth sets in. So from roughly 2030 onward, they will still be getting stronger, but not as quickly as before, which means their strength relative to the United States will likely be higher during this decade than during any future decade if current trends continue and those expected trajectories play out. Now, it's anything but certain 
that those trajectories will play out. This is all speculation, and though these are guesses based on good numbers, by people with very in-depth understandings of history and the systems and entities involved, and a solid grasp of the details of the figures that they're looking at, they're still just guesses. Nonetheless, much of our planning, especially on the governmental level, takes place at this scale, using such guesses. So the UK's decision to up their nuclear weapons arsenal may be in part a response to this and similar perceived threats. There are quite a few potential flashpoints in the world right now, and the next decade could get pretty messy if any of them go off and are not tamped down, more or less immediately, by everyone involved. The other major predicted threat vector here is non-state entities like faceless hacker groups, ideological terrorist organizations, and internal threats that could destabilize a country's operation or well-being. Nuclear weapons are generally fairly useless against such adversaries, and in some cases can actually become tempting targets for them. There have been quite a few books and movies centering around the theft of fissile materials or entire operational nuclear weapons by a terrorist organization looking to achieve the maximum possible number of casualties or to simply hold a city for ransom. This hasn't happened yet, as far as we know at least, thankfully, but it's a possibility. And in the latter years of the Cold War in particular, a whole lot of nuclear materials went missing, primarily from Soviet stockpiles and bases, which raises the possibility that some unknown actor has such materials in their possession today, which could allow them to create a nuclear weapon, or, more likely, for non-nation-state actors, some kind of dirty bomb, which would primarily serve to dust a region with radioactive materials, and which would be terribly destructive as a consequence. But you can't really counter this kind of threat with nukes, either. And though there have been a few instances of hacking groups being taken out by conventional explosives, the buildings they're hacking from hit with airstrikes, it seems almost unthinkable that there would be a scenario in which it makes sense to nuke a city in order to kill off even the most successful hackers, who managed to poison another city's water supply or knock out their power indefinitely. They would almost certainly be hit with something, but the typical counter to such attacks at the moment is something in the cyber realm, or some kind of sanction, or other diplomatic solution, or in some very rare cases, airstrikes against the people who seem to have committed the hacks. Of course, the other possibility here is that this is a move meant to be reassuring and face-saving, rather than something truly strategically necessary for the military. As of the day I'm recording this, it's looking like indirect talks between Iran and the U.S. may start back up soon, raising the possibility that crippling sanctions by the latter against the former may be dropped at some point, and Iran may be incentivized not to further develop their nuclear program, which is widely suspected of being a legit nuclear energy program that is also concealing an ostensibly non-legit nuclear weapons program. We've also seen enough in recent months that analysts are assuming North Korea can now make tactical nuclear weapons and nuclear warhead-tipped missiles that can reach just about anywhere on the planet. As I mentioned earlier, Russia and the U.S. are both still bristling with nukes, but both arsenals are made up of mostly antique, generally quite expensive and tedious-to-maintain models 
while China has substantially fewer nuclear weapons, but they're generally quite a bit newer and meant to supplement a burgeoning military capability that would theoretically allow them to go head-to-head with their larger military superpower foes, if not quite yet, sometime within the next couple of years. And other nations like Turkey have toyed with the idea of acquiring nuclear weapons in a global context in which it's increasingly easy to do so because of the proliferation of peaceful nuclear energy technologies, but also because of a thriving black market providing the requisite military know-how to make such weapons. All of which means a country like the UK, which has had a rough decade or so politically and economically in terms of its international prestige and, more recently, like pretty much everyone else, due to a global pandemic that they've been stumbling their way through to the best of their ability, they might be looking to batten down the hatches where they can, fill in some perceived gaps in their infrastructure, and they might be attempting to reclaim their previously obvious position as a global power after a long stint as just one part of a larger powerful organization, the European Union, which they are still located adjacent to, but no longer part of. So there is a lot that they will have to do alone now, despite their many surviving and quite strong relationships worldwide. And in the modern world, having a convincingly large nuclear weapons stockpile might be a perceptual element of that capacity to stand alone that some people within the current administration feel they are coming up a bit short on at the moment. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Stuff You Should Know, an Incomplete Compendium of Mostly Interesting Things by Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant. This is a book that was written by two podcast hosts, people who produce a show called Stuff You Should Know. And the show itself is a lot of fun. It's one of the OGs in the podcasting space, actually. It's been around for a very long time. And these guys definitely know what they're doing in terms of recording the audiobook version, but also in terms of writing a compelling book to begin with, of taking a topic and stringing together a collection of information that you wouldn't necessarily know to look for. These things wouldn't necessarily stand out on their own, lacking the context that they provide to dip into that information. And they go off on a lot of interesting tangents that connect back to the core theme of each chapter, but which also themselves are bundles of interesting information that might be worth a research segue at some point in the future. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Stuff You Should Know by Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Each day, I curate and summarize the news through my daily newsletter, One Sentence News, which you can find and subscribe to at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.